Uh, we continue our, our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark today, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there or um, get there uh, if you have a digital device. Uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. If you recall, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, uh, Mark 9 begins with Jesus' transfiguration, and before and after that time, He's been telling His disciples that that uh, he's headed to Jerusalem where he's going to, to die on a cross and be raised three days labor, later. The disciples are uh, struggling to get their head around this and um, you know, there's just all kinds of, of issues that Jesus is dealing with with his disciples. And then we come to verse 42, Mark 9, 42 through 50, this is God's word. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, a passage like this is a hard one. It's certainly not a comfortable one. Lord, there may be some of us here in this room or joining in on the, on the live stream, Lord, who hear these words and just very matter-of-factly accept them because they're in your word. Lord, there are others of us, surely, who struggle with them. Lord, who wonder why this is true. Perhaps we're even offended by them. But Lord, they're in your word. You've revealed them to us. Jesus, you've spoken them to us. And so help us to understand them today. Uh, Lord, not just simply to understand them, but to take heart, to be shaped by their truth, their reality, that we would enter life and enter the kingdom of God and live appropriately and accordingly, we pray. Amen. Well, none of us like to be confronted. None of us like to be corrected. It's uncomfortable. It pops the bubble of our self-righteousness, of our perfection. We would much rather have people tell us how great we are than to confront us. We, we would much rather have people go along with our whims and our desires. There's a book that came out in 1972, The Stepford Wives. I don't know if any of you have read it. It's been made into a movie and TV shows multiple times over the year. The plot changes with each version that comes out. But um, the premise involves the married men of this fictional town of Stepford, Connecticut, and their fawning, submissive wives. The wives never correct their husbands virtually mindlessly go along with their desires. It seems like every husband's dream, right, guys? I mean, come on, who wouldn't want that, right? 
but it makes a real relationship impossible. Because unless you allow someone to correct you, unless you allow someone to challenge your assumptions, you're not in a real relationship. When a friend corrects us, it's because our friend has our best interests in mind. They want better for us. They want us to avoid the heartache that will come if we continue down a certain path. They want us to succeed in the future. Proverbs tells us that the wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The wounds of a friend are like the cuts that a surgeon makes. They're intended to heal. They're faithful. Therefore, are good. They're much better than the false flattery of an enemy who's just buttering us up to let us down. I think, if we're honest, much of the time, we want a Stepford God. I find it interesting that most people like Jesus Right? You find all kinds of people that say they don't like the church, they don't like religion, they don't like Christians, but they like Jesus. Maybe so. Jesus is a compelling person. He's full of grace and truth, but I suspect many people who say they like Jesus haven't really met him. All of us have a tendency to make God into our own image. We want God on our terms, available to our beck and call. And the the Gospel of Mark gives us numerous pictures of Jesus, little anecdotes, snapshots of his life and ministry. And these pictures are not intended to give us a step for Jesus, one that we can control someone that only flatters us and only tells us what we want to hear. These stories of Jesus are intended to show us his authority, his greatness, his wisdom. They're intended to challenge us, to confront us, in order to transform us. Ultimately, these stories about Jesus are are intended to introduce us to the true Jesus, the real Jesus, the, the, the Jesus who really is so that we can have an authentic, true relationship with him. Not a relationship with a Stepford God, but a relationship with a God who is full of grace and truth that loves us, but also wants the best for us, and so is willing to challenge us when necessary. Our passage today is one of those hard sayings of Jesus, one of those challenging statements. It's a difficult passage to hear We don't like it, but we need to hear it. We need to hear it. And so let's consider the two warnings that Jesus gives us in this passage. The first is that Jesus warns us about accommodating sin in our lives. Accommodating sin in our life. In verse 32, he warns us that our sin can undermine the faith of others can undermine the faith of others. This verse continues the conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples throughout much of this chapter. As I said earlier, he's been speaking about sacrificial service. He's been speaking about going to the cross to die a sinner's death, to die a convict's death on the cross. They've been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Jesus builds on what he said a few verses earlier about little children in verse 42. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. 
Jesus' point in the larger context is that if we're more concerned about our status or our selfish concerns, if we're cavalier about the sin in our lives, then we are about taking up our crosses and living our lives for Jesus and the sake of the gospel and serving others. If we're more concerned about those things than that, then we're in danger of undermining the faith of others. Our sin doesn't just affect us, no matter what we might think. There are consequences that go beyond us. Our sin affects others around us too. And Jesus is warning us that if our actions serve to destroy the faith of a child or of a new believer, we're deserving of God's judgment. But then in verses 43 to 48, he warns us about how our sin can undermine our own lives also. And just an aside, uh, for those OCD among us, um, you'll notice that two verses are omitted from the text. You'll see that in the Bible. You'll see that in your lap. You'll see that on the slides um, that, that we've showed you. Um, there's a footnote at the end of verse 44 and verse 46 explaining that some copies of the Bible have, that have come down to us over the years include those two verses. And so when the Bible was numbered, when verse references were added at a certain point in history, those particular verses were included there, but they're missing from our oldest and most reliable manuscripts, and so modern scholars conclude that they've been added later. That's why they're omitted in your translation. Regardless, those verses that are omitted are identical to, the, to verse 48, and, and so it makes no difference for the meaning of the passage, whether those verses should or should not be included, they basically restate what the text already says. Okay, so that's the aside. Let's think about this text. It's hard. Jesus gets pretty graphic here. Jesus says that if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, because it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. And similarly, he says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Why? Because Jesus explains, it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God missing body parts than to have them and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So let me start by talking about the elephant in the room. Jesus talks about hell. He repeats it three times in this short passage in order to stress the point. And, and the word that we translate hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna derives its name from Gehenom in the book of Joshua, which means the valley of the sons of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley. Uh, it's, a, it's a literal, physical place located on the south side of Jerusalem. It was a place known for fire because it was there in the days of King Ahaz 800 years earlier that, the ch that children were offered as burnt offerings to the pagan god Moloch. And, and then later, the God-fearing King Josiah declared that place to be unclean for those reasons, and it became the place where the city's trash was burned. All of our imagery of heaven and hell is by necessity metaphorical. It's, it's a symbol, but that doesn't make it any less real. 
This picture of Gehenna, this, this burning trash dump, is an incredibly fitting, visceral picture of the reality of hell. Hell is not a literal fire, but fire is a picture of hell because it disintegrates. It consumes, it destroys, and Jesus says that the fire never goes out. It continues for all eternity. Now, the question that everyone in our culture asks, you're thinking it perhaps right now, how can a loving God send people to hell? How is that loving of God? How can we follow Jesus if he threatens people who don't follow him with eternal torture? How is that anything other than God just being a manipulative bully? Have you ever heard those kinds of questions? Have you ever thought those kinds of questions? Most people today are fine with a picture of a loving God, but they want nothing to do with a judgmental God and a God who sends people to hell. Now, this is a big issue, and those are important questions, and it would take a whole sermon or more to, to do justice to each one of them, so I have to be necessarily brief today. But let me say this. The Bible teaches that God is both a God of love and a God of justice. Love and justice. Most people struggle with this. Uh, they think it's a contradiction. If God is loving, then he couldn't also be filled with wrath. If, if he's loving, then he should just accept everyone and, and forgive everyone no matter what. But the Bible teaches us that God is angry towards sin precisely because of his love. He's angry towards sin because of his love. If you love a person and you see something or someone ruining them, you get angry. You do something about it. God's love, or I'm sorry, God's wrath is not a, a cranky disposition. Uh, it, it's, it's rather his settled opposition to cancer, to a cancer, a spiritual cancer. God's justice requires that he oppose sin and evil and brokenness in the world. You know, think of something evil in this world. Maybe it's something big like genocide or human trafficking or the killing of unborn babies. Maybe it's something closer to home like your child being bullied at school. Well, if you're a loving person, shouldn't you just ignore that? Shouldn't you just look the other way? Of course not. The point is that none of us thinks that it's okay to turn a blind eye toward what we think is evil. Miroslav Volf is a, is a respected theologian from Croatia, and he has seen violence in the Balkans. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, If God were not angry at injustice, and deception, and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. As a man who's lived through ethnic violence, um, how do we not respond in kind only if there's a God of judgment. He's simply saying what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12 when he wrote in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. As it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, for you, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way, friends, for our passion for justice to be honored without feeding into the frenzy for vengeance is the belief in a, a God of divine justice. A God who will right all wrongs and settle accounts perfectly. Now, here's what Jesus is saying in Mark 9. You have to understand the seriousness and the horror of hell to get his point. He's not trying to bully us or manipulate us. Friends, he's trying to save us. The love of God is seen in his willingness to take his own justice upon himself in order to save sinners. And the irony is that, a, the, the irony is that people who want a God of all love and no justice, they're asking for a God whose love doesn't cost him anything. Uh, it doesn't cost him a fraction of the, the, the love that God actually demonstrated by experiencing hell in our place so that we would never have to. That's what the cross is all about. On the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment of God in our place so that we, through faith in him, will never have to. If you understand that Jesus experienced the judgment of God to save you from the judgment of God, you'll have a much greater appreciation of his love for you. It's this love for us that motivates Jesus to shoot straight with us about the danger of hell. The danger of sin, which leads to hell. Sin separates us from the presence of God. The presence of God is the source of all joy and love and wisdom and good of any kind. And since we're created in God's image for a relationship in God's presence, it's only his presence where we'll thrive and we'll flourish and we'll achieve our highest potential. And that's why fire is such an apt description of hell. It disintegrates. It destroys even in this life, we see the soul disintegration that comes from self-centeredness and pride and addictions and immoral choices. And Jesus is telling us that if we continue in these ways, if we continue to practice sin, it sets an inevitable trajectory. In each of us, there's something growing that will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. But in order to underscore his urgency, he doesn't, talking about, he doesn't talk about nipping it in the bud. He talks about amputating a limb. He's not, of course, speaking literally because missing a hand or an eye doesn't keep us from sinning. John Gregory, I'm sorry, John, I had to. <laughs> John can tell you that his missing toe does not keep him from sinning. <laughs> That was not in my notes. <laughs> Jesus is underscoring 
Jesus is underscoring just how serious sin is by the fact that nothing, even things that, that, that you dearly love, um, like our hands, our eyes, our feet, these things that are so important to us, nothing is more important than our relationship with God. The lesson is this. Sin is such a destructive force that it cannot be pampered with. It must be shown no quarter. You cannot manage it. It must be put to death immediately and decisively. Tim Keller gives the illustration that sin is like a fire that has broken out in your living room. And so just imagine looking over in the corner and seeing a cushion on your couch has ignited. You can't just sit there and say, well, the whole house isn't burning, it's just a cushion. If you don't do something immediately and decisively about the cushion, the whole house will be engulfed. Fire is never satisfied. It wants more and more, and it's the same way with sin. The drastic image of amputation means we must be ruthless with the sin in our lives. It can't be allowed to, to burn over in a corner. It will engulf you eventually, which is hell. We must confess our sins and change and do everything we can by the grace and power of God to put it out for the fire of sin's misery could eventually envelop us and goes on forever. What sins are you tolerating in your life right now? All of us have besetting sins. I'm preaching to myself this morning. What sins are you tolerating in your life right now? What things in your life is God speaking to you about that you need to address? Jesus is a loving friend. He's telling a hard truth that we need to hear. Don't picture him as an angry God who is threatening to, to he's threatening to tow you. <laughs> Don't picture Jesus as an angry God who's threatening you to tow the line. He's saying these things because he wants the best for us. He wants us to experience life. It shouldn't be lost on us that Jesus repeats something else besides hell three times in this passage. He talks about entering life or entering the kingdom of God. And this life, of course, starts now. This eternal life starts now when we place our faith in Christ. But in an ultimate sense, we're still waiting for it. We're waiting to see God face to face, to, to live in his presence, to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory, to have every tear wiped from our eyes and all of the sin in our lives and in our world eradicated to flourish to thrive, to, to be full of never-ending joy. That's our hope. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to still and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. This is not a negative passage in Mark 9, even though we may think of it on, on, on the surface in that way, Jesus is not out to still our joy. He's out to give us the only thing that will truly satisfy. He's out for us to experience life. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Don't be too easily pleased. Don't settle. Here's the thing. The only way you can stop a bad habit is to replace it with something else. It's not enough to know that something is bad for you. People eat junk food and binge on electronics all the time, knowing full well what what it will do to them. You have to replace an old affection with a new one. You have to confess that the God you have uh, that, that God is the only one who can satisfy what it is you've been looking for in all of these other places, and you need to pursue Him. It's not enough to just stop sinning. You need to pursue Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us to flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We turn away from the sin in our, in our lives. We identify it. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness. And then we pursue something else, something more glorious than what our sin offered us. And we pursue him, God, in Christ by the Spirit. We pursue him in community with those who call upon the Lord together with us with a pure heart. Are you in the word consistently? You're not going to put sin to death in your life unless you are, right? And so if you're not, start this week. Set aside time every day for personal Bible reading, for for prayer. Find ways to do it in community as well. If you're not already in a group, join us three times a week for our morning devotions or join a women's or a men's Bible study or a growth group. The question is, what can you do to pursue Christ, to grow in your love for him? Pursue the life that Jesus came to to give, a life lived in the presence of God. Jesus also wants us to be salty. He wants us to experience life. He wants us also to be salty. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Salt in those days was an important preservative. Uh, there was no refrigeration, and so if you wanted something to, to last, if you wanted to keep meat around for any time at all, it had to be preserved with salt. And in this sense, salt is the opposite of a disintegrating fire. Salt is also a seasoning. It makes things taste better. Jesus is saying that he wants us to be the moral preservative of the world, to savor life ourselves and season it, to make it better for other people around us. He wants us to be the salt of the world. But in order to do that, in order to point people to the kingdom of God, we have to reflect and experience something of the kingdom ourselves. That's why having salt in, our, in ourselves is the same thing at being at peace with, with one another. God's people know the peace of God. We seek to live as peacemakers, 
as we point people to the Prince of Peace. This is a hard passage because Jesus shoots straight with us. He's not a Stepford God. He's our king who has authority, but he also is a king who calls us his friends. And so he tells us the truth, not to cramp our style or to rob our joy. He tells us the truth because he wants to save us. He wants us to experience what's best for us, to experience life in the kingdom. So is there a sin in your life that you need to cut out? What is it? What do you need to do about it? But don't just turn from your sin, turn to God. Pursue a closer relationship with Jesus through his word, through prayer, in your personal devotions, and in community with God's people. And by experiencing more of God yourself in this way, he makes you salty. So that we do more than not merely cause others to stumble, we actually are able to point them to the one who satisfies our own souls. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we do thank you that you tell us the truth. Lord, help us to have ears to hear. Lord, would your spirit bring conviction where conviction is needed? Lord, would your spirit offer reassurance of the gospel? <laughs> Lord, that Jesus went to the cross and experienced your judgment for our sin, so that we can be made heirs, sons and daughters of you, and inherit life in the kingdom. Lord, stir our hearts with affection for Jesus, that he would do that for us. And Lord, motivate us to live for you, to understand the seriousness of sin and that to not play with it, Lord, but to put it to death that we would experience life for your glory and for the good of others around us and in our world, we pray. Amen.